This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast for April 13th, 2020. There's a lot of talk about Russian interference in US elections, but what about US interference in elections around the world? In this podcast, I ask a foreign policy expert, is there any moral difference? Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, What matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. Coming up on today's podcast. We may well have used more uh, kinetic support in those circumstances. Um, And I think it's important that we learn that those don't work. You've used a euphemism there that I want the listeners to fully understand. By kinetic kinetic support, support, you mean bombing people. uh, I mean bombing people or providing them with guns. That's coming up in a few minutes. But first, I want to thank all of my donors on Patreon. I really appreciate them all. If you don't know, Patreon is a system that allows people to donate a buck or two per podcast or per month. And that helps me to devote more time to researching interesting guests and topics. So if you think that you could do the same as them, there's details on the website and at the end of the show. It's not so long since wind and solar power were seen as the Cinderella of the energy world. They didn't have the heft of their two big, ugly, polluting sisters, coal and oil. That might not be the case for much longer. The first article I saw on this was about UK electricity production. Remember that Britain was the first country in the world to have an industrial revolution, which was fired by its coal production. The world's first real energy generation plant was built in London in 1882, and of course coal fuelled the British Navy for much of the time that it was conquering half the world. That's why it's startling to read that coal, along with all other fossil fuels combined, have been overtaken by renewables, mostly wind power, as the main source of electricity in the UK. In the first quarter of 2020, 45% of all the electricity in the UK was generated by renewables, while only 33% was generated by burning fossil fuels. That's a gigantic modal shift in quite a short time. Most of the balance, by the way, came from nuclear power. But the really striking thing is not the speed with which renewables are taking off, It's the speed at which their price is dropping. Renewable energy in all the main world markets, including the US, Europe, China and Russia, renewables there are now cheaper than coal. It's not so surprising that we would have got to that point, given that whether you're building a wind farm or a coal power plant, you have to pay for building the infrastructure, but with the wind farm, once it's built, the fuel is free. With coal, even if it's dirty and dirt cheap, it can never be as cheap as free. But, the argument went, we already have hundreds of coal-fired plants around the world, and there's nothing to stop them from burning cheap, dirty coal until they fall apart. 
if they're already built, that sunken cost can't be retrieved, so the owners are likely to keep running them. Maybe not. A report recently from Energy Innovation Think Tank said that since 42% of the world's coal plants are unprofitable, there's an increasing economic incentive to close them down, and that's just what's happening. For example, the Colorado utility XL will retire, that means shut down, 660 megawatts of coal capacity before their planned end-of-life dates and switch to renewable sources and battery storage because it's simply cheaper to do so. That's because electricity from new wind farms is cheaper than electricity from existing coal plants. Get that? If you own a coal-fired power plant, if you've already built it and paid for it, the cheapest way to generate electricity is to close it down and pay to build a new wind farm. This isn't so surprising. Most of the development of a technology occurs in its early years. The Dutch might disagree with their windmills on their polders, but serious wind power is a pretty new technology, so it's natural that it's getting more cost-effective and efficient right now. And, as I said, coal has been used for electricity generation for nearly 140 years now, so any improvements to the technology, any efficiencies that make it cheaper, have probably already been thought of. And money talks, so you can get used to seeing a lot more windmills on the horizon. Do you agree? Do you disagree? If you want your point of view heard, email podcast at challengingopinions.com and say what you think. On the line now, I have William Burke White. He's a professor of law at the University of Pennsylvania, Cary Law School. He's got a long string of other academic distinctions, and he's written extensively on international criminal law, international economic law, and human rights. He served in the Obama administration from 2009 until 2011 on Secretary Hillary Clinton's policy planning staff. He's a specialist on issues including U.S. policy in tense areas, such as Russia, Venezuela, and Iran. And he's the author of a forthcoming book called How International Law Got Lost. That's due for publication next Next year. William, I'm looking at all of the things going on in the world today, and I'm thinking about the relationship between the US and other countries. And I'm just wondering that there's a huge harumphing and discontentment with the attempt by Russian intelligence to interfere in the US elections last time out and possibly this year as well. And I'm wondering, do you think that there's any moral difference between that attempt by Russia to influence US politics and the way that the United States has made huge overt and covert efforts to influence regime change and regime policy in countries around the world? Well, first, William, let me say it's just a pleasure to be with you today. 
Uh, and, and you've asked a, a really important question, and, and it's a relief. Well, we're all in the midst of coronavirus to think about some of the other things that are happening in the world, because one of the dangers of a global pandemic like we're in is we forget mm -hmm. uh, that there's other important issues out there as, as we all focus on, on the coronavirus. Um, but you ask a really good question, and I think we have to, my, my short answer is yes, there is a difference. Um, but we have to separate out different kinds of influence that we see in elections. Mm -hmm. um, there's some kinds of election assistance that are really good. Um, and some of what the U.S. has done in the past falls into that category. Um, that's where you provide a government with the resources, uh, the ability to conduct a fair and independent election uh, or election monitors to make mm -hmm. sure that election is fair. And so at one end of the spectrum, we have that sort of assistance. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, we have what we're seeing Russia do in the United States and elsewhere. Russia has not only targeted the United States, uh, where they attempt to subvert the election really through, uh, in Russia's case, mostly the use of um, the Internet through, uh, you know, Twitter and Facebook and social media, uh, where they are distorting, for example, lying about where information is coming from, who's providing it, exploiting search algorithms so that when you uh, open up a Facebook page, you think you see uh, something uh, from, from a friend, but is in fact from a Russian bot. Mm -hmm. um, and somewhere in the middle is another kind of influence which the U.S. has engaged in uh, in the past, and that's where you have a preference in an election. Uh, and you do things overtly rather than covertly um, to help aid or assist them. And I won't say the U.S. has always been right in the choices it has made in those regards. But what really sets apart what Russia is doing is the covertness of it, the fact that they do it secretly, that they don't um, acknowledge where information is coming from. Contrast, for example, Russia's efforts online uh, to, say, Radio Free Europe, which is a U.S.-funded uh, radio broadcast for much of the Cold War, but everybody knew where that information was coming from and the political positions it might espouse very different from what Russia has done in 2016 and will likely do again in 2020. Okay, okay. But we don't really want to get into a game of we do it, it's good, they do it, it's bad. There have been some outright criminal behavior by the US in the past. We don't know if they're doing it now, but that's the nature of criminal behavior, that you don't know that it's going on when it's going on. But for example, the United States was actively involved in the coup that overthrew the democratically elected government of Allende in Chile that overthrew the Iranian government and uh, installed the Shah of Iran, uh, terribly repressive regimes in both cases. That's at one end of your spectrum. Where, where do you put the cutoff point mor morally? So I, I would actually condemn much of what the United States did in Latin America uh, and in the Middle East that you referred to. I think mm -hmm. those were wrong, immoral, uh, and and perhaps illegal, depending uh, on, on how you judge them and, and, and so forth. 
Um, but I was drawing a distinction between kinds of election interference mm -hmm. uh, or election influence. Uh, I think you're right to say that uh, promoting a coup uh, is <clears throat> illegal. Uh, and that's true. It's both illegal and, and probably immoral. Um, but I was really trying to differentiate different ways that countries try to influence the outcome of an election. Um, but I would agree with you that I would say countries should not, and that international law would say uh, they are not allowed to um, engage in a coup in another country. Although they have, and it's certainly not only the United States that has done that, but they're perhaps leading providers in the coup market. But to move to maybe softer interference, if you want to call it that, I know that during the Orange Revolution in the Ukraine, this was when a pro-Putin government was essentially overthrown or kicked out in a popular revolution. The US was doing things like flying in equipment for the opposition, flying in big screens that could be used at protests, that sort of thing. Can you possibly imagine any United States government tolerating another country flying in equipment or aid for an internal opposition? You know, first, I think I would say we have to be somewhat careful about saying who did what. Um, and uh, I don't have uh, confidence that the United States flew in big screen TV is to put up in the heart of Kiev. Mm -hmm. uh, they may have come from the outside, um, but uh, I think it's important to, to make sure we, we know what facts we have and where we get them from. Um, I would also say that that was a domestic popular uprising. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I think it would be wrong for the United States to overtly uh, interfere in the domestic politics in Ukraine. I think that's quite different from, say, the U.S. president going on national television and saying he supports those protesters in their efforts to achieve democracy. Mm -hmm. um, and that the, the line for me would be uh, the internal within the borders of that country, either physically or through, you know, cyber hacking uh, approaches of trying to distort it, as opposed to giving uh, political assistance from the outside. Um, you know, another example of this that was a challenging one when I was working at the State Department was the um, uh, attempt at a, a revolution, though it didn't get very far, uh, in Iran back in 2009. And there was a hard question that we had to ask of, you know, is it better for us to support the protesters um, with with political statements uh, or not? Mm -hmm. um, should we uh, endeavor to make sure that the Iranian government cannot turn off the Internet, which was the the mechanism through which the protests were being organized? What, what, um, was, the, what I, was the answer to those questions? Well, you can read reporting um, in The New York Times and elsewhere that there are, uh, you know, certain uh, Internet providers, Twitter and others, uh, undertook efforts not to uh, uh, have have their services shut down during that period. To evade um, censorship, essentially. To right, to prevent the government from essentially shutting off the Internet and thereby keeping protesters from being able to coordinate. Mm -hmm. um, I can't say whether those were U.S. government efforts or rather uh, efforts by um, 
you know, internet companies to make sure their platforms were secure and able to operate around the world. Um, I think that's very different, though, um, than trying to use those platforms to subvert the election or sending uh, arms or, uh, you know, military support to protesters on the ground. And uh, I think that, that, you know, too often in American history, uh, we may well have used more uh, kinetic support in those circumstances. Um, and I think it's important it, well, that wait, we wait, learn wait, wait, that wait, those wait. You've, don't you've used, a, you've used a euphemism there that I want the listeners to fully understand. Yeah, by kinetic, kinetic support, support that you mean bombing people. Uh, I mean bombing people or providing them with guns or you can think about um, the Iran-Contra scandal during which uh, this was back in, in, in the President Reagan era uh, where we, uh, through some illicit and illegal trades, you know, got arms to the Contra rebels in Nicaragua. Um, and that was bad policy. It was immoral uh, and is the kind of election interference that we have to avoid. Okay. Um, from what you're saying, maybe I'm just p- picking up a random pattern. You seem to say that everything, let's say, in the last century was bad or all the bad stuff was in the last century. Everything recently is okay. Am I correct? Uh, I, I wouldn't. I, I don't think it's quite that simple. But I do think that during the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, uh, and perhaps this was driven by the seeming imperative of the Cold War. Perhaps it was driven by the fact that the human rights movement had not taken route to the degree it has uh, today. Um, the United States made some bad policy choices, uh, and history uh, will forever remember those. Um, I think we've gotten better. I don't want to say we've gotten it right all the time. Uh, if you look at our efforts in Iraq to rebuild a government, which mm-hmm. was in this century, uh, it was a different kind of interference, and Saddam Hussein's government was horrific on lots of grounds, but I'm not sure the right answer was to say the United States will come in and will uh, build you a new government uh, to our liking. Uh, okay, uh, well, pa- pause, we pause have, on that, pause yeah. on that, because you mentioned there, or hinted at at least, the US government cooperating with people like Twitter to try and keep those services running in Iran yeah. when they were important to the opposition. There's also been the case of an app used widely by protesters in Hong Kong, which under pressure from the Chinese government was taken off the App Store and I think also the Android market. Don't you think that perhaps that comes across more as serving U.S. interests rather than serving a moral cause? So I, I think you're right to say, William, that there's real, you know, uncertainty. We're in a different era where the rules of the road still aren't clearly uh, articulated, where we're trying to reason by analogy from uh, human rights rules and from uh, you know legal rules that were written in a different era. Mm-hmm. We're also in a world where it's unclear what how the the corporate technology sector relates to its countries of incorporation. Sure, sure, um, no, no. But uh, before it, before you broaden that mm-hmm. out, just compare deal with the comparison between trying hard to keep a an electronic tool for protesters online in Iran and trying hard to get it offline in Hong Kong? 
Um, you know, I, I I don't know enough about the example in Hong Kong you are referring to to speak to it in 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 great detail. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that you know it's a nuanced judgment. My general view is that uh, you know platforms for freedom of speech and expression should stay open. Now, it may be that there's a circumstance where they're being used for really bad reasons and do need to be shut down. I'll give you a different example of that, which is Radio Milcolin in Rwanda. It was the radio station Mm -hmm. that was inciting people to genocide. And my normal position would be, it's a radio station. Freedom of speech is a good thing, and we want to encourage it. Just as, background, when, for the, radio... just as background for the listeners, this was in the early late 1980s, early 1990s, about a million people in with the Rwanda's a country with two large ethnic groups. One group attacked another, and it is believed killed approximately one million. Tutsis were murdered, incited by this radio station, which was the, really the only means of communication in the in the in the in the country. In the country, and they were having these broadcasts where they were telling the Hutus to quote "do your work," and mm-hmm. that work was to commit a genocide. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you ask me, should that be shut down? Absolutely. Um, and so there are circumstances where you know even on Twitter we ask this question, if somebody is broadcasting hate speech that includes incitement to violence, should their account be shut down? Um, And my answer is yes, but Mm -hmm. figuring out where that line is and also what role the government should play, which comes back to the point I was making a minute ago, what role the government, say, of the United States should play versus what role those technology companies should play, first and foremost, policing their own content. Um, but it's, you know, so so with regard to the Hong Kong example, I don't know that it was anywhere near Radio Mil Colleen, but that's just an example of when freedom of speech may I, go I, I just, far. I just, no, I just have to interject there. This was a genocide in which a million people were murdered. The Hong Kong protesters have been overwhelmingly peaceful, and it's really not in any way rational to make a comparison between the two. So what I, I'm, I, you know, fair, fair enough. And again, on, on the Hong Kong example, I don't have the facts, but I, what I'm trying to say is there are circumstances. And if you want one that's a little less clear cut, mm-hmm. um, thinking about how we deal with um, Twitter users who are inspiring uh, hate speech or um, or uh, incitement to violence. There's a number of European governments, for example, that have banned, um, uh, you know, references to or, or invocations of, of, of not Nazi uh, and anti-Semitism uh, from from the Nazi era, and those are probably good legal policies to have in particular contexts. So, how we police that is a really challenging question, and one that uh, I think we're still trying to struggle with what the right answers are and where the lines are. Okay, I take it that you have strong views on that. The app that I was referring to was HK Live, uh, and it was essentially a mapping app, and it was being used to advise Hong Kong protesters where police were collecting and, and essentially how to get out of the uh, escape routes from uh, being attacked by the police. But moving on and from that. I, and I don't, I don't see a good reason that that should be shut down. Um, but again, it's just not one that I know about. Uh, okay. But if you were to try and have some empathy and put yourself in the seat of maybe somebody rush working for the IRA, the Internet Research Agency in St. Petersburg, which is essentially an arm of Russian military intelligence, and you were looking at the outside world and seeing through a foreigner's lens what the US has been doing in the past 20, 30, 40 years, 
it wouldn't be unreasonable for them to say, those people who are uh, making fake American-looking Facebook accounts to promote disunity and to promote false stories, to say what we're doing is way more moral than some of the things the U.S. has done. That's true, isn't it? You know, I don't like the argument that because something immoral was done in the past, it's okay for a different side or a different actor to do it now. You could frame your question to say, you know, would Vladimir Putin like it if the United States started a cyber campaign uh, to try to undermine his efforts to to modify the Russian constitution so that he can stay in power for for life? Mm -hmm. I think we're at an inflection point where um, we have to ask, what are the right rules of the road for this sort of behavior in an era where Facebook and Twitter is actually much more effective than, you know, sending guns or um, uh, or the kind of, of support the United States did provide um, in in times past. And where I look at that is to say we have to draw a pretty firm line, uh, at least in terms of saying who's providing the information and where it's coming from. So that at the very least, the recipients of that information can make a judgment about its veracity, its accuracy, and uh, its potential political bias. So then do you think that the United States should forswear any operations where it is promoting information or distributing information without revealing its hand that it is the, the promoter of that information? I think I would agree with that. Uh, where it gets complicated um, is figuring out what it means that it's coming from the United States uh, as opposed to coming from um, some other actor. And we see this with China today, where a company like Huawei is an independent company, but is it really an agent of the Chinese state or not? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think we, again, um, because technology has evolved faster than the sort of rules of the road in both law and diplomacy, um, have to, to come to grips with who actors are and how they're identified. Um, I do think, though, that if the United States is going to try to uh, influence an election somewhere, um, it needs to be public about the fact that it's doing it, both for its own people to judge it and for others to do so. So at the very least, uh, accountability, I think, is is critically important. Okay. One other way to influence people is available to Russia, which is essentially to switch off their heating. Russia has a huge oil and gas industry, sells gas to many Central and Eastern and indeed some Western European countries and has used that for political ends. Uh, Some of those countries, I'm thinking again, perhaps of Ukraine, have very long, very, very cold winters. If the heating goes off, people die. And Russia has at times just switched off the gas. Do you think that using commodities like that for international diplomatic muscle is acceptable? Um, uh, I don't. I think it's very dangerous. Um, and I think, you know, we've seen it where Putin says either to the Ukraine or to Poland on a cold day, do as I say, or I'll, uh, you know, turn off the gas. Um, it's it's a challenge. It's why these countries now are attempting to have multiple points of, of origin for their gas and energy supplies. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I do think it's the kind of, of political tool that Putin certainly wants to use. 
Um, but I think it's a dangerous one. Uh, and the best way to blunt it is to make sure that people in any country aren't dependent on only one source of, of energy. In many ways, it makes sense that Mr. Putin would use that as a tool of leverage and influence because it's effective. Um, and at least for a while, it was the most effective tool that Russia had. Um, but I think there's a lot that countries, be they Ukraine or Poland or the Baltics, can do um, and have been doing to ensure that they aren't dependent on only one source of energy uh, so that this doesn't become a lasting tool of influence. But in a word, you think that's not an acceptable diplomatic tool? I think it's a very dangerous diplomatic tool. Okay, then pause, pause, um, it, for, a, pause yeah. for a moment on that, because shortly after you left the Obama administration, a couple of years later, there was an enormous drop in oil prices in 2014, about a 60% drop in oil prices. And at that time, the main international adversaries for the United States just happened to be Russia, Venezuela, and Iran, three countries acutely dependent on the price of oil. That drop in the price of oil was very fortuitous for the United States in that it put huge pressure on three of their major international trouble spots. And also, analysts looking at that would say that the opening up of the tar sands oils in the United States and the way in which the US managed its uh, federal oil reserve had a big part to play in that drop in oil prices. Is there any reason to suspect that that was not just an accident, that drop? Well, the the largest drop in the history of oil prices um, is happening, uh, you know, during this COVID crisis that we're in. Mm -hmm. And the country that is probably sure, sure, no, but hurt focus worse on by that is... Well, I'm drawing a comparison here mm -hmm. to say, um, you know, the U.S. is hurt by that because shale production is the most expensive production uh, there is. And so it's the U.S. producers that are suffering most from from the current downturn. What I want to do, though, is draw a distinction. And, and that's why the COVID example is an important one that is driven largely by external events in the world. Um, and, and what we saw in 2014 uh, was driven in large part by sanctions that were imposed, many of them unilaterally by the United Nations uh, under um, you know, legal the States, rules. No, I mean the United Nations. There are United Nations sanctions against Iran, uh, against oh, right, uh, Venezuela was later, um, not, not against Russia. Uh, well, actually also against Russia after Crimea. Um, and so where it is where energy prices are, are manipulated because of or through uh, international legal tools like the United Nations, um, I have no problem with it. It's done um, legally uh, and is appropriate. I have bigger concerns uh, where you don't have a international sanctions regime in place um, that it, and a particular country is cutting off energy supplies um, for its uh, for its own political purposes, and to the degree that the United States may have done that, in addition to what was authorized by the UN, I would personally um, have have at least reason to to, to want to understand better what the U.S. was doing and why it did it. And um, finally, and you've mentioned the current COVID crisis that we're in. You're aware, and I suspect I can guess what your attitude is to the current U.S administration. Where do you see the United States' soft power influence going? 
So, uh, you know, I've actually been preparing a lecture today on, on exactly this question of sort of the U.S. role in the world after the coronavirus. And the United States for most of the last 50 years was the country the rest of the world looked to, whether they liked it or not, for leadership at times of crisis. Uh, and at the moment, the United States is nowhere to be found in terms of world leadership, having turned completely inward under the current administration uh, and in response to, to this crisis. And I think uh, the U.S. will find itself uh, at a significant soft power disadvantage uh, and China being seen by many as the global savior when this is done, mm -hmm. uh, unless the U.S. very quickly reverses course and recognizes that a pandemic of this nature um, is a truly global crisis um, and one one where we need to be motivating and driving um, global responses uh, and global assistance uh, in a way that we haven't. I would hope uh, to see, I hate the overuse of another Marshall Plan, um, but a significant investment, not just in the American economy, but the global economy, and a real coordinating role with the UN, the G20, uh, the G7, uh, and every other organization under the sun um, to, to try to revive the global economy after this and particularly critically to prevent or at least respond to the spread of the coronavirus in the developing world, which is the story uh, that I fear will come, uh, come next. Oh, I absolutely agree with you on the last point. William Burke White, Professor of Law at the University of Pennsylvania, Kerry School of Law. Thank you very much for talking to me. Uh, pleasure was ours, William. Have a good day. If you like the Challenging Opinions podcast, please rate and review the show on iTunes and other podcast providers. Share it on Facebook and Twitter. Tell your friends. But most important, make your view heard. Email podcast at challengingopinions.com. Go to the website for sources and links to what we were talking about. And while you're there, please like the show on Facebook, follow at Challenging O on Twitter, and follow William Burke White at W Burke WH. And get in touch with me if you can suggest a guest or a topic for a future show. Thanks to everyone who's signed up as a patron on Patreon so far. I appreciate them all. They help me to devote more time to researching topics and guests. And if you could do the same as them and donate a buck or two per podcast or per month, go to patreon.com slash challenging opinions, or you'll find the link on the website. Also, you can find out how to subscribe to the podcast for free on your computer or on your phone or by email. That's all at www.challengingopinions.com. Coming up next Monday, that's April 20th, I'll be talking to the journalist, critic and novelist Tom Rosenstiel. The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening. Listener.